You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast, a platform that we've created to bring the Nordic community together. My name is Paul Hackett, and I'm your host. Oh, this is the Breaking Down Organizational Silo session for the Evolution Exchange. Um, Steve, would you like to start off by introducing yourself? Uh, thanks, Paul. So, uh, as Paul says, my name is Steve Cox. Um, I would say I've had a fairly unconventional journey into IT. Um, I left home at 16, joined the British Army, and after nearly nine years, decided I had enough of being shot at. So I left and formed my own company and became an independent IT consultant at the age of 24, something I've been doing now for the last uh, well, 33 years. Um, worked with customers, both large and small, people like IBM, Ericsson Hewlett Packard, the Irish government, pensions office, uh, Nordea, Scandia. And I've also worked with very small companies. I did anti-pornography software with PixAlert in Ireland. I even worked for a bunch of guys who were funded by the uh, British Special Services doing um, software to counteract terrorist incidents. And we worked in an old ballroom in a castle in the middle of the countryside. So, And I guess my most uh, unusual customer was a two-man company who managed to somehow win the contract to rebuild the national ID card for Kuwait. So they outsourced their entire IT to me and I did it for them over a period of years. Um, currently got two clients, I support Videobet, who are part of Playtech on a sort of ad need basis. Um, sadly, one of the drawbacks as a DevOps or CICD expert is if you do a good enough job, you're out of a job. Everything's automated and you've got to move on. So I support them uh, uh, irregularly. And the main client nowadays and for the last four and a half years has been Swedbank, where I am part of the enterprise CICD tech stream. Fantastic. Um, Hava, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Hawar and uh, the head of infrastructure and the cloud at Betson Group. So I'm responsible for all of our uh, brands and I'm super happy to be here to discuss this topic. I really love the combination with both people and technology. My experience is that lots of companies tend to focus too much or only on the technology and forgetting about uh, the other part, which is the people that is the one that actually needs to drive this. So I really love to be in that uh, between uh, in, into that uh, atmosphere and see how I can support and drive the, the company forward. Thank you. Paul. Yeah. Uh, Chris. Sure. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you all guys here. Um, my name is Christopher Rydersetter. And I'm a DevOps evangelist and I've been working high and low in-house and, and as a consultant, as a manager, architect, as SRE and whatnot. So the road is long, uh, about like 25 years or so long <laughs> within IT. Uh, I have a bit of a past in the Royal Swedish Air Force, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm unsure whether I was you know, being tired of being shot at or whether they just got tired of shooting at me. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, that's the way it is. Currently, I'm at uh, Bonnier News. Um, so that's a, kind of a very short summary. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, Frederick? Yeah, thanks. My name is uh, Frederick Dunning, and uh, I actually have a background in the games development industry, uh, working with computer games. And at some point, I decided I wanted to work with more traditional software. Um, I, I'm guessing I'm probably the the youngest of the bunch here, but uh, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, 
regardless, I've I've had some experience with the with the topic, and I I also think that it's really interesting. Just like you said, Havar, one thing is the technology, but the really important aspect is uh, the human uh, aspect of it. At least that's uh, most difficult, I think. Yeah. So today I'm the head of uh, DevOps and operations in Magenta. We're uh, I'd say a, a small uh, open source company in uh, located in Copenhagen. Uh, we have some offices uh, in uh, Aarhus and in Greenland as well. And we've experienced uh, a fairly massive growth uh, in the past three years. So uh, obviously, I think uh, people that uh, know uh, about the value of DevOps will also know when you experience uh, a massive growth, uh, it's a core need to, to actually have the infrastructure to support it. So uh, we've been in a, a pretty massive transition uh, in the past couple of years, and I've uh, sort of been responsible for uh, the DevOps uh, transition, both regarding infrastructure and culture. Fantastic. All right. Well, super happy to have all four of you on board. Experiences from all over the place and all over the world, apparently. Uh, so, um, Steve, would you like to start off with your question? Okay, so I think the one I was pitching to you guys is, what has been the biggest hurdle regarding breaking down organizational silos? Uh, Havar, do you want to start this one off? Uh, yes, I love to. Thank you, Stephen and, and Paul for the, the question. Uh, there is uh, lots of uh, things in my, my experience. I mean, it's and uh, they're probably similar to each other. But I'm going to summarize. It's usually the, the legacy, lots of legacy in the, the company organization. They haven't actually been having working with change in a natural uh, ways of, of working so the the change becomes huge because now you tend to or we haven't done any transformation in, in many years so the the challenge is created you get a lot of job protection because it's people getting into that, that they get worried that are oh, we gonna trans uh, transform to something else am i really needed into that uh, the technology that is uh, outdated not adopting the new ways of of working but I, I believe that the major hurdle is, is you're trying to make a too big change uh, uh, to too fast at once, rather to implement that change should be a natural part that you always do that, but taking my uh, smaller steps, uh, but but it accumulates really much over over time. But but I would say definitely the legacy, the job protection uh, and the technology that is outdated and that is becoming hard when you want to break down the, the organization silos because they can almost get hard coded sometimes in both people and coders as well. I think it's it's very true and, and interesting again, uh, going back to what you started uh, saying, Hava. Mm. Uh, it's been my experience as well that actually the, the <laughs> what happens is that the people uh, tend to be uh, scared of that transformation because uh, they can get the impression that uh, it will mean that they become redundant uh, yes. and 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 while that's not the case uh, there there is uh, a change needed in the way that you work and the way that you approach things so you get this kind of weird tension between you have the legacy software that you need to update but people are so focused that on, on the fact that they are the experts on the legacy software. So if we transition away from that, I will no longer be the expert. 
And that's really a, a difficult uh, challenge, I think. No, I agree. I mean, uh, also trying to work really hard and I repeat myself every time I kind of speak to the teams. I need your knowledge now. I will need it during the transformation. I will need it when we are done. So all the knowledge uh, we, we have in the company is, is needed. And in the majority of the cases, that is the, the case. What it's about is usually you uh, repackage the ways you, you work, but it's still going to be technology. You still need good uh, software engineers. You still need DevOps engineers. It's, it's another way of, of uh, working. Yeah, and also an opportunity to evolve and, and gain new skills in a, in a new area, yeah. and which can be frightening as well from time to time. But, but uh, definitely also the, the constellation, right? There is um, usually these teams have over time kind of reinforced or it's usually it's very usual that they reinforce these silos over time right and tearing them down is is uh, a bit of a challenge for them as well on, on a personal level to to all of a sudden right these other guys that you might have right maybe not talked ill about they still you know haven't been really nice to either all of all of a sudden they're going to be your best friends right so it's it's kind of a transformation for exactly, for you. exactly. Uh, so that's yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, sometimes you also have uh, have the external factors that you can't really control. I mean, the market can change. Uh, the The market can be super competitive. Maybe you're used to be in the market for like eight years yourself. Then you can you don't have to do much much change. But suddenly you have twenty five other suppliers that also are really good at what what they do. Uh, so that is also one of the big, big hurdles that can come up, you know, the kind of the almost like a culture shock when you need to, to start move things around uh, and don't have much time on you because you're, you're going to lose market share if you don't. Yeah, I guess, you know, many teams are also business driven, not technology business, also not technology driven. So, I mean, the business is going well, we're making money, you know, why change? Um, yeah. You know, what's what's the benefit we're going to get from changing? You might say that we are big and fat and slow but hey we're making money still so what's yeah. what's the big deal you know yeah. so i think sometimes lack of leadership and lack of vision is also uh, one of the reasons why it's hard to break down these silos because sometimes the people making decisions are not actually involved at the level to say hey guys we're heading to a cliff with this technology you know it's way past end of life or um, okay it's okay now but in three years time or four years time we're going to be dead in the water to our competitors yeah. 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 Of course, yeah, yeah, it is. And the, the self self image can be quite hard as well, especially if you've been in an industry where you have been the leading, you still think you are super good uh, and you think you're still one of the best. And that is, uh, I've experienced that as well when you enter the company that has been very successful for a very long time. So actually changing that self image to be aware of what actually has happened outside. Uh, we are not the best anymore. There are other ones doing cool things as, as well, even better things. Uh, and that perception can be quite hard to change because, again, it's not technology you are changing, it's the people's uh, mind and what they kind of used to, to do. So that can be actually super challenging to, uh, to change, especially if the company is over 1,000 employees and above. Yeah, I was with um, I was with IBM back in the 90s, who yeah. definitely suffered with not, involved, well, not invented here syndrome when they were so vigorously pushing OS2 and then, of course, Windows just like sunk them. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's also it's interesting that inherently in any change process, what you need from people is the the willingness and the ability to learn and to grow 
and expand your boundaries. But there's a, a, a pretty unfortunate correlation between how long you worked with the technology and how unwilling you are uh, yeah. to change. So the longer you work with something, the more unlikely you are to, to get up in the morning and tell yourself, today I really need to learn something new. I want to expand my horizon on how to approach the fundamental aspects of my job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's a, a problem in our business line of business as well, right? because investing in a technology, investing your time and, and, and learning something, you know, and it changes so quickly. So you really have to learn to like unlearn things, which is more difficult in, than to just learn something new. So yeah. there's a lot of challenges in that as well. I completely agree. I totally, totally agree. I mean, you also have the, the aspect of uh, businesses that uh, that acquires uh, other other companies and buys other companies and that the kind of the strategy they, they grow. I mean, then you will become like two of everything uh, and you will by natural have silos. You will naturally have two cultures, two stacks of technology. You're going to have two of, of everything. And that can be a super big, big hurdle as well to kind of break that part uh, down as well and try to work as as one one unit rather than than two because again you're gonna get a lot of psychology because you probably have one cto you uh, already in in both both places you have one head of development you have lots of uh, tools and things that are working in in places as, uh, as as well so it can become yeah. can become struggles i don't know if you have experienced that that part um certainly at swedbank i mean it's a huge it's a huge spread out company. You know, we've got yeah. uh, offices in uh, four countries. Um, yeah. Some countries have multiple offices and IT stacks yeah. are different everywhere. And there's, I think, 54 business areas. Or um, So, I mean, it, it's a huge amount of technology, everything from mainframe to Windows servers, old VB6 applications lying around somewhere, Linux servers, containerization on OpenShift. So, you know, you've got everything, everything you could possibly think of that's been used in the last 40 years, they've got it somewhere, somewhere in the bank, you know, so. Uh, so a lot of science. Yeah. Uh, I guess the banks are uh, in a big need of transformation as, as well, uh, definitely. But then, you know, slowly, slowly chip away. You you retire the old stuff and make sure you implement it in a better way. You know, or a... exactly. We've uh, touched on it a little bit um, already with what um, Frederick was saying about upskilling uh, or people not wanting to, you know, move away from technologies they've used for years. But uh, it, it leads quite nicely into your question, Hava, if you'd like mm -hmm. to pose that one to the group. Yes, uh, of course. I mean, uh, one one challenge I have and need some some help and, and discussions around is how do we work with upskilling uh, our, our engineers in a structured way? Uh, at the same time, you know, breaking up the silos. Because you're going to need a different uh, skill set sometimes. You need to, to recruit, you need to, uh, to upskill the one that you have. You might need to... Uh, take one skills in one place and move it to another better suited suited place. Uh, and also something that I think is super hard is how to calculate the calendar time for, for it, because it is quite hard change and uh, the pressure from the business is usually hard and uh, the time is fast because the market doesn't wait for you. So you need to either to be in that speed or you're going to uh, miss it. So that is the, the part of I want to kind of throw out here. So. Uh, Please share your experience in that. Uh, I would love to hear how, how you have tackled this uh, this part. Steve, do you want to start this one off? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So at Swedbank, we kind of have decided that um, we really need to use a lot more automation. I mean, everyone's going on automation. So when, we, when we're when looking at upskilling, we're combining not just uh, changing the way uh, the businesses are using the technology stacks they're using, but all, all their methodologies they use. Yeah. yeah. So we uh, we have identified a way of working within the bank that we'd like to promote, uh, a, a common way of working. Not it's not enforced because obviously there's it's not possible to enforce that on a lot of teams because different tech stacks will go different ways. But at least we have a set a common way of working which we can promote and then support teams moving on to. So simple things like using Jenkins for automation, using Git, using pull requests, you know, using Jira for for your, your planning, all, all the basic stuffs, um, and then building um, building up um, shared libraries that will allow them to do certain things in a common way. And then we approach the teams, you know, and we have education sessions with them, explain to them, you know, don't be afraid. What is automation? What is it that's going to be transforming you? How are you, you know, going to be able to sort of uh, to move up your skill set so you can do this? Then they go away. They think, do we want to go automation or not? And most do want to do automation. Um, and then we'll do some sort of like gap analysis of them. You know, where are you today? Where can we take you? Um, what's your roadmap? You know, what are you, what 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 can be done? And then really the third phase is, you know, what are you capable of doing? Um, and how much help do you need to achieve that? And then we have a centralized yeah. team to help that. Can I jump in with one one question? In, yeah, in sure. fact, I mean, uh, yes, you can take the team and kind of explain and, and all of that. But how, how do you kind of handle teams that might not be interested at all in what you are saying or things that you say they're not buying into it at all because uh, they think they already have a solution that that works and they've done it for 20 years. Yeah, um, at th this stage with so many teams who do want to help for the ones who don't want help, mm. knock yourself out, guys. You know, yeah. because at the end of the day, there there are KPIs. Management are looking at performing how the teams are performing, mm. and they are seeing a gradual shift at those who do move to automation, those who do move to more common ways. They're performing better. They're getting less defects in production. Uh, the satisfaction from the surveys they do is higher within the teams because there's less stress. Um, and then management itself put pressure on those teams who are not moving to say, well, why, why aren't you going this way? Yeah. You know, so, so that's that's been the main driver for us is we have various KPIs in place which monitor how teams are performing and how, how they're getting on. And mm. one of the main factors is that, you know, if they're not if they're not performing, it's entirely up to them. It's a business decision they must make, but it's going to be more costly for them in the long term. Yeah. Another comment then, uh, Stephen, it's super good uh, uh, that, that you shared it, but, but with uh, you, you usually have legacy technology that sometimes is super business critical. I would say the majority of the revenues usually comes from legacy software. Sometimes you want to drive into the new stuff uh, where, you know, uh, tend to all the new stuff tends to kind of get the star shine on, on it. Indeed. Uh, so how do you balance that out? I mean, you want to protect your, your revenue and the people that are actually are working with that as well at the same time, get them into the uh, the, the new skills coming up as, as well. Because uh, what, what can happen if we put all the energy on the, the new cool stuff uh, that some can keep people that resign software and say, hey, I'm not appreciated here any, anymore. And that can kind of start to create turbulence. So how do you create an environment where you upskill them, but still not creating turbulence, risking the, the operations and the legacy that is actually a big part of revenue. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest one of the biggest legacy issues in banks, of course, are mainframes. Yeah, which is uh, you know a, a huge skill set in its own right. Mm. And I don't think Swedbank have any particular uh, plans, uh, at least they're not sharing at my level, of decommissioning mainframes. They're going to be there for a considerable time. So what we're looking at, we're working with the vendors like uh, you know the the IBM um, type companies to say, okay, where are you going as a company with um, with your um, with your DevOps and uh, automation, because at the end of the day, I mean, all this legacy stuff are, is supported by companies who has this as a business case. You know, they can't themselves just sit around and not support their their customers. So IBM, for instance, have lots of products that they are they are built around um, automation, and we're gradually bringing them into the bank. You know, so we have Jenkins agents running on mainframe today. You know, running batch jobs. You know, JCL, um, and this allows us to start doing a lot of. Um, things that you think, oh, wow, you can't do that on a mainframe. Actually, you can. So, you know, we're doing things with synthetic data and generated data and uh, linking mainframe jobs in with other non-mainframe pipelines uh, to achieve great levels of automation. And the mainframe teams are starting to feel, hey, actually, we're, we're, we're part of the journey. We're not being left out here. Um, mm -hmm. it, just because you're working on a lot old system doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's, it's redundant and not to be used. So... Uh, and I, I would say that a lot of these mainframe guys has been working with automations for very, very long time and very successfully as well. And had, you know, we're working with parameters that we don't have in the same extent today. I mean, that they have to really think about what they were doing, right? So they got usually got a great automation mindset. The Usually the challenge is about letting go some of the control, right? And they are also usually working with key systems that, can't really fail, or rather, it can be catastrophic if they fail, right? So, so finding the balance and, and having a lot of discussion, I think, with these teams on, on how to balance that into a more agile way, yeah. way of doing things, maybe chopping things up in, in smaller things and and uh, going through their kind of yeah. infrastructure and see what they can do, right? Yeah. Um, because they're a lot of them are great guys. They're, you know, really good at automating things. I agree. Super interesting reflection. I mean, I do tend to get feedback that, but uh, I, I used to have full control, but now I don't. Uh, the teams was was in full control over this area and these systems, and now we don't. We don't know who is responsible. Uh, I mean, there, there, is a, there is a third phase we do, which is, you know, having done, you know, introduced them to automation and show them what can be done. We do the gap analysis then, and then we actually work with the teams. Some teams don't have the skill sets to do the automation, you know, and that's one reason why they, they are resistant, in which case we say, OK, then we'll do it for you. So we actually embed resources with the teams and we do the automation uh, pretty much for them, um, but involve them. So a lot of mob sessions, a lot of pair programming, yes. And after a while, they start getting confidence in the new technologies and they realize, oh, we're not losing control. Actually, what we're doing, we're get rid of, getting rid of all that manual stuff that we used to do, yes. And now we're actually automating it and it's fun, yes. And then they become yeah. part of the journey. Yeah. Basically show them. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, you haven't got very experienced DBAs acting as data entry monkeys. You know, they actually can get on with, and do stuff which is critical for their um performance and then they can start educating and teach themselves new things around the data which they never had time before because they were always doing manual routines they've been following for the last 20 years mm. yeah and i think you know broadening the perspective of, of mob programming as well uh, mm. and getting that at least getting the teams to try it, uh, even though they might be usually not doing that kind of stuff i think a lot of the teams will find uh, value in it uh, it's great for so many things. And even though the uh, 
the upskilling might be taking a little long term in terms of specific individual, you're, you will gain that back really fast mm. by the fact that they are all learning the same thing and that they can evolve together. Uh, so there's so many great things about more programming in there. So I highly recommend that as an Absolutely. accelerator. I mean, it actually breaks down the silos within the teams themselves. Because, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, teams themselves are silos. You know, oh, he does DB stuff, or oh, he does the C sharp stuff. He does, but but when you start doing more programming and you all see each how each other works, then suddenly it's you are capable of swapping. And but it's, I think it's also very important the automation because it's such a specialist skill, you don't normally have it in a team. So and it's once it's done and up and running, it doesn't really need to have somebody there full time looking after it. You need somebody to go to and say, oh, it's broken. Can you fix? So it, it's good for us to not have automation guys in the teams per se, but we move them in when needed and move them out. And then the teams take over responsibility for the pipelines and maintain them themselves and come to us when they break it and then we help them fix it and carry on again. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think <clears throat> it's fairly important actually in, in this transition uh, process to uh, as much as possible move away from the idea that you have a DevOps team or an infrastructure team because uh, if if you if you do it in that way, you will never really get the ownership in the in the teams. And what you really want is to uh, have the teams themselves automate the most relevant tasks in their day to day, rather than someone from the outside coming in and saying, "Look, we can make this uh, CI/CD pipeline, and here's all the stuff that that we think is relevant for you." And I think already. Already, when when you get someone telling you what's relevant in in your work, uh, already at that point, it's it's going to be a, a tough uh, collaboration, right? Rather than uh, if you if you teach uh, people slowly, they can create that value themselves, and then it's going back to what we discussed earlier. Then it also becomes visible for 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 these uh, for these people how they are continuing to create value. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, I agree. there is some other aspect on, on this as, as well. Uh, uh, when it comes to titles, I don't know if you have come entered that because there are lots of new names, so we can't call them new anymore. But you know, you have the SRE, you have the DevOps, you have uh, lots of new kind of different from someone that have been working with operation, they might only have like DBA in their name or uh, operation specialist. Or then suddenly someone comes say, oh, we're going to hire SRE. So they said, what is an SRE? Uh, what, what, what? what do you mean by by that uh, am i not needed any anymore and again the the, the psychology comes comes in comes in again uh, how do you kind of implement that in a in a structured way or do you see that that part as well you know to to get there because i'm trying to kind of send links to people and try to understand it's just a new ways of we're still going to work with the stuff that we have but in a kind of a different mind mindset you know we do more structure and uh, achieve more and more quality Uh, I can jump in again if you want. Um, uh, I, well, I'm working with Playtech gaming industry, so it's a video bet. Um, they're small. They're small. I mean, they're like um, when I first joined them um, as a consultant 14 years ago, we were 180 people. Now they're 25 or 30 or something like that. But they have a very, very flat organization. So they used to be very cross-functional teams, and the cross-functional teams were somebody doing the Oracle database, somebody doing C++, somebody doing C Sharp, very, very strict or, you know, very, um, uh, uh, very sort of um, predetermined roles. Yes. And work would stop because there was no DBA available to help you because you were too, they got rid of all that. 
and say, right, you're all programmers. Yes. And uh, I will chuck stories at you, whether it's a C++ or a C Sharp or a Java or Python, uh, even go into the database. Yeah. Just knock yourself out. Yeah. Um, so we took away all those. And I think um, in 35 or 30 people, there is, um, well, only two people with the word manager in their, in their name. Uh, it's so everyone does everything pretty much. Um, and, and that works quite well in, in Sweden, but it's, uh, it, that can be a very cultural thing as well when it comes to title, it can be super sensitive. I mean, it can be a deal breaker for even key, key people. Uh, you have that. So uh, I, I see it tend that it's a difference depending on what country or market or culture we, we have that, but there are cultural differences as well and how you interpret the titles. Yeah, I, th I think also depends how much the people love the work. <laughs> I mean, sometimes loving the work is more more important than loving your title. Yeah. You know, so you, don't, you don't care what you're called. You just love to turn up to work and play the games all day or or whatever. You know, and then you don't. You know, okay. If it's if I have to have a title to get a certain salary, then maybe I'm interested in what my title is. But I mean, if if you have a if you have a, um, a salary structure maybe based on uh, on merit rather than uh, on title, and uh, I, I think that's yeah, the I ideal. Think. Yeah. But, but 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 probably uh, probably difficult in some cultures. I I get that. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's rather interesting also that how it's focusing, getting more and more focused around that you are a developer. Right? It, it just changes what area you're in. You know, even if you're an infrastructure guy, you're still evolving to being a, a developer. So you will be producing things, automation workflows or applications even uh, to use in the future. So you're, we're moving away a lot from changing hardware, right? And doing that stuff and going up the ladder to towards developing things within your area. Yeah. So it's also interesting. One of the most recent things that I or we decided was exactly to uh, go towards um, having developers with DevOps competencies rather than having DevOps developers, if that makes sense. So I guess that's also an upscaling thing, but but like implementing that knowledge at developers and everyone is a developer with DevOps competencies rather than it's specific people with that title in it. Yeah, and I think okay. that's a kind of super interesting thing as well, right? You know, whether, whether you will have uh, developers they can do the kind of operations part or if you have like operations people that are evolving up to like developers right and I think it has maybe a little do, to do with scale although you can do it in different ways right but because if you're co a small company uh, I suppose that you won't have any real gain of having like the, a small team of infrastructure guy or like one you better to spread the knowledge and let you know all the developers have the knowledge and you share it better that way if you're a large company, you can still see there are some benefits with, you know, having like a, a DevOps team that will be producing uh, services for the platform, right, uh, for the rest of the company to consume, right. Uh, but there is all sorts of ways that you can solve this, which is really exciting, right. So you can you can choose a model that that fits your company, right. But I think it's important if you go to centralized way, you should still be remembering that this team is like your content team or a development team that will develop services for your company but it's no different from like your content team right 
So they, they, you need to have the same kind of conversations that you would have with another development team. These are, these are the set of features that I need. Uh, and this is how I like to consume them. And well, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> it's super good. But how, how do you kind of uh, calculate the calendar time, time for it when we have this kind of implementation that needs to be done? I mean, what kind of metrics and data concretely do you enter to, to look, in, uh, look into when, when doing this? And I know this is a hard, hard question since it depends on the size of the company. But on a, uh, for yourself, how how would you? Because everyone knows it doesn't take one one day or probably not one week week either, because it probably takes quite long time and it's easy to underestimate the time it, it, it takes. But do you have any kind of tools or metrics or guidelines you use for yourself when doing this? Um, tools. Um well, um, document things, <laughs> wiki. No, but um, an, an honest gap analysis. Yeah. I mean, uh, sitting with the teams and going through where are you guys now and where do you want to take yourself with this automation? You know, getting that roadmap down in a format that everyone can understand it and then agree to and sign off is absolutely vital. Mm -hmm. So getting you, you know, back to the basics, getting your requirements sorted out to, to work out what it is you're going to automate and how you're going to do it. Yes, is a is a is absolutely key. Yeah, and then getting buy-in, and yeah. typically buy-in from the top. Don't get buy-in from the guys at the bottom, because they obviously know the benefits. But if they if the top guys don't see the benefit, then they tend to kill these projects. Yeah, so top-down buy-in is absolutely critical, and a good roadmap to decide you know what you're going to do and how to do it, and then you can start looking for the resources. And those resources might not come from inside the team. You know, that's that's when that's when you it's good to have core DevOps competencies which is outside the team, which could be borrowed. Well, both ways buy-in, I would say, is the, the yeah, best. But, yeah, that, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's critical. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think there's also this first lift that is a bit difficult when you start to move from being like a traditional team and go up to do automation and do that. When it gets to into your mind, when it gets to be a mindset of yours and, and you're working it from a day-to-day -day business, there will be also a culture of continuous learning in a different way. You will be exchanging tools in a quicker succession and things like that. So uh, there is like clearly two steps. And I think the first step here is where you can be more like manageable around it. The second step is very difficult because it's more about, you know, continuous learning yeah. in general, yeah. so to speak, right? Bringing culture uh, and maybe, yeah, creating culture around continuous learning, right? Yeah, yeah I agree. And <clears throat> I think what, what we did here was also to identify sort of the first milestone uh, or the first plateau that we wanted to reach. So we defined a roadmap with all the instances of automation and what we wanted. And then we we, we actually managed to, to make a fairly precise estimate of how long that would take to implement on the technical side. But I think uh, on, on the actual implementation in the teams, it's very difficult because some teams immediately just pick up on it and say this this is great this is how we work now and and they start actually building infrastructure as well to uh, to enhance uh, the infrastructure that the devops team is building but then there are other teams that just don't see the point or don't have the time to implement it and that can be a really uh, really long road i think i i, I mean 
it's not a, a how are you said it's it's probably not going to be within a week but likely it's not going to be within a year either mm, yeah, so, take, yeah i mean i can share a bit how we have uh, kind of uh, working with with this in a structured way to upskilling it and you know kind of breaking up the the, the silo so what we are going through now is going from a, a technology component feature factory into a product orga oriented organization and it's not that you know uh, complicated that as as it sounds it's more about those starting to packaging this this stuff i like to usually go with my mcdonald's example if you go to to mcdonald's and order a, a big mac you order a big mac and you will get a product you don't go to 24 different stations and say, hey, I want the bread here. Uh, no, we don't do the bread. You have to go there. <laughs> and then you go there and say, but I don't have the, the, the salad. But we don't do salad. You have to go there. Uh, and then you run run over there. I think that is the case for lots of companies that have the technology you know, and, and delivering it. So what we are now creating you know, is, is creating uh, products, the, the values so we understand. Uh, for example, we have something we call the observability stack, where we have, you know, the monitoring tool, the Prometheus, the, to collect the, the metrics. And by that, you naturally kind of breaking down the silos automatically, because you will identify the skills needed for that product, and you will connect that that those people to that product. And then it's so much easier also to to uh, talk to your stakeholders even say you need to have your management on on board, because you will much easier explain the value and it's also much for more fun and interesting for a for an engineer to work with with a product that's something that has a super clear value it's not only one one wheel or one uh, one one component anymore it's something that it's super valuable we can monitor it we have kpi on it the the management presents it you know on the big all hands meeting so it becomes, you know, uh, a very natural part of, of the ways we work and that you don't have to spend so much energy to convince them because they will adapt it by them themselves, uh, the majority of them at, at, at least. So that is uh, the, the work we are kind of spending a lot of time. And then you can start to break down the, the different products and kind of set timelines on it. And then you probably need to change the, the times around it. But it gets like a red thread you communicate uh, around and talking about the value because I think everyone wants to deliver value. So if you can convince them to deliver value, they will break that silo by by that part as well. It will help. It doesn't solve everything, but it does help you a, a long way, long way, uh, definitely. Yeah. Sounds super interesting what you've got going on there. Um, but I need to move us on to the next question. Frederick, would you uh, go ahead? Yeah, thank you. So my question is, how do you know that an organizational unit has become a silo? So what identifies a silo as opposed to simply an organizational unit working with high expertise on a specific corner of the organization's business? Because, I mean, sometimes that's just the case. Chris, do you want to start sure. this one off? Yeah, sure. Uh, for me, I think it's a lot about how that team is communicating with other teams and interacting with other teams, right? If it's a lot of throwing things over the fence, then it's a silo in my world. And if you work towards processes that kind of enforces that kind of culture, then it's uh, it's very much a silo for me. Uh, on the other hand, even if you're very highly specialized and, and don't really need other people so much, uh, the way you kind of interact with other people 
in this is kind of key. So I would say if, if you're open and, and kind of friendly and, and want to work together with other teams on these specifics where you can, that will be an autonomous team, all right? But on the other same, if, if you if you're unwilling to do that, or if you want to very specific uh, um, specifications, if you need to do something and be very formal about it, I would call it a silo. That's just my two cents. <laughs> but it was a very interesting question. Yeah, it's it's a super good question. Thanks, uh, stuff. I agree. I mean, for for me, uh, how I can see when its unit has become a silo is is when when two teams or groups are depending on each other but they do not communicate, there is no transparency, but they do really need each other in order to you know, deliver this value or this, this product. Uh, so that is kind of the, the quickest way I identify the, the silos. Do they need each, each other? Uh, could they have you know, a stronger bridge between each other with that, with that help? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to repeat what you guys are saying. I'll add an, add an add extra bit to this, so a hardened silo is one that also completely resists any attempt at change. <laughs> so they are they are nuclear bomb proof. No, but uh, yeah, you do get those as well. You know, they they really do not see any need to change because they're wor they're working absolutely fine. The, the fact that the service they're providing is absolutely crap, and the whole rest of the organisation is screaming out for change doesn't phase them at all. Yeah, no, we're doing exactly as we are. You know, we were formed to do, and you know, um, we so need, we see no need to change, and that's kind of depressing, yeah, you know, because you know that they could do so much better, and they actually would have a much better uh, quantity uh, quality of work as well themselves if they only adapted some of these things, you know. That, um, so yeah, but you just got to chip away at these guys, you know. It's it, but it's it's a long campaign sometimes. I think. Uh, thank you for some. Uh, Really interesting reflections there. I actually have a, a, a sub question here, yes. uh, because you know, <clears throat> in, in in the business that we're in, things change really fast, and we've all seen, uh, you know, the new buzzwords come like uh, agile methodologies and DevOps and breaking down silos and stuff like that. Sometimes, uh, in my experience at least, uh, you have to stop and reflect about what you're doing. To me, uh, working agile is a completely natural thing, uh, but I don't do it religiously. As I pick and choose what I want. The, I think it could be interesting maybe to to hear your thoughts about what the biggest, what are the biggest costs of having silos in an organization? Because yeah, we all agree that silos are bad, but it would be interesting to hear you guys reflect on why are they bad? Yeah. I mean, I can uh, start start in that. I would say definitely time. You lose a lot of time by by that. Uh, you get late to the market. You will uh, most probably lose quality on, on the product. Uh, you will probably lose innovation since you kind of breaking up uh, diff different uh, groups into that and not having the open kind of dialogue in, into that. Uh, and you, probably your business stakeholders won't be too too happy because they they need stuff to get out to the market and. Uh, takes too long for us to, to deliver. So that is how I would definitely summarize that. Uh, not sure if you, you recognize any of, of that or what your experience is in that. I agree uh, well as well. And I think that it, you know, it slows automation as well. If you're going to build automation, it's very difficult to do with, within a silo organization. It takes a lot of time, right? And, and the outcome is very unsure. So uh, it's, it's definitely important. 
as well. Yeah. And speed is is perhaps the most important factor these days. If you're not quick enough, you will be out of business. Yeah. That's just the way it is. Yeah, it happens super quickly. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I agree. I think what you lose is probably time to market and innovation, right? Because ideas can flow across teams and you start to, you, you, instead of spending your time improving both of the methodologies, but more importantly on the product that you're selling, uh, yeah. you start uh, spending your time being at war internally and having meetings about uh, why the other team didn't do as they were expected and job satisfaction falls off a cliff and yeah there's a lot of reasons I uh, think. exactly yeah we, 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 we ran a little book club um in our team for a while and we were looking at um uh lean principles you know and that kind of touches a lot on silos because you know the whole idea behind a silo really is to make that that particular unit efficient yeah, so you know, let's let's have a you got a, let's say a typical one, a ticketing system for I don't know doing access management or something like that. Yeah, you know, you you've got a bunch of guys there answering tickets, um, doing uh, eight hours a day, absolutely rock solid, um, doing all the access management requests for an organization of five thousand people. So they are super efficient. I mean, they but they can't keep up with the workflow. Yeah, so you hire more people to do more data entry. Yes. So they're super efficient. Their manager's really happy. They get through lost tickets, but everybody else is really fed up with them because it takes days or weeks to get an access management thing done. So it's a typical thing that you should, should automate. But the guys doing it don't see the need because, I mean, their job, they're, they're not sitting around doing nothing. They're super busy. In fact, so busy, you know, the old analogy, you know, the, the cart going down the road with square wheels. You know, they haven't got time to change the wheels around ones and make it go faster. And it's a lot of these silos sometimes just don't have that uh, vision. You know, yeah. but that comes also to kind of the the, the trust uh, thing. I mean, what identified the silo between two kind of areas is is lack of trust, uh, yeah. uh, right? So if two groups or teams, if people don't trust each other, they will uh, they will isolate them from from each each other. And it's same with uh, the thing you mentioned that they keep still keeping the uh, the manual work as 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 they do. That is also kind of a sign of, of trust, you know, not not trusting uh, maybe where where they are. They, if they do automate, they will still uh, have something else to do or they will still, you know, maybe even, even grow. I mean, I I tend to, uh, to encourage that if you do automate and you grow, you will actually grow by it. Uh, the, the biggest mistake you can do is to not trying to, to improve. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, and sometimes teams don't have the mandate themselves to automate or change their ways of working. I mean, uh, you know, maybe there's a, a team that has to okay everything. Maybe there's a process office and they are driven by group security, who are driven by group legal, who are, you know, so, you know, a simple thing, oh, let's just automate access management. Uh, not quite so simple because of all these other knock-on effects, you know, and you've got to get buy-in at the most highest level before you can do it. Otherwise, you might be compromising security within the company or exposing yeah. customer data or, or whatever, you know, so. Oh, when, well, we're kind of on that topic. What, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> tips, and, yeah <laughs> tips and tricks do you have to, to build trust across teams? Uh, what have you used? What kind of tricks have you used? Well, Hava, you seem to have started this one off already, so why don't you uh, jump the sure. ball on this? <laughs> definitely. This is one of the, the areas I do spend a lot of time time with, but it's definitely very plain and simple communication and dialogue. 
sounds simple, but it's hard to, to implement. I mean, uh, I don't want to generalize, but I'm going to do it any, anyway. Engineers, they like to send messages to each other on Slack, on Teams, uh, and not actually talk to each other. I mean, you have a phone, you can call. You can even call by Slack and Teams, Teams as well. Uh, so I do, do uh, spend a lot of time to encourage you to talk to each other, especially when solving uh, issues or problems or there might be conflicts. You know, they don't, you can't solve them over email or, or messages. It actually get, gets worse because the misunderstanding rates goes up by several hundred percent. Uh, so so there, there also uh, another important that aspect for when you are in a leader, a leader position, be a good role model and make sure that your leadership group have trust in each other. Because if the leaders in, in, in an area, I mean, in, in my area in infrastructure and in cloud, uh, I have six, seven leaders in that group. Uh, we need to work super good together. We need to trust each other. If we don't trust each other there, our teams won't trust each other. And that tends to be sometimes be forgotten and spend all the time of why are they not talking to each other? And then you look in your own group, but we don't talk to each other either. So how can we expect our team members to be uh, to talk to each other and communicate well and trust when you and I on a leadership position doesn't trust each other? So that is kind of my biggest uh, uh, biggest take on on this, and, and that actually also works when I spend time on that and, and communicate around a lot around that around this area. Yeah, I, I I think you're touching on some very core principles, especially actually talking mm. to each other rather than messaging each other. Yeah. Something sounds basic, but it's really important. I think also to me, it seems often where the misunderstanding happens is that uh, two teams might be uh, working in complete different realities, right? So one example could be that you have the infrastructure, the DevOps team, and they are developing all these awesome automation tools. And if the application team would use these tools, everything would go so much faster. The, the code would be of higher quality. Everyone would be happier. So the uh, infrastructure team is just sitting around building all these awesome things, making the roadmap really, really nice. And the only customers they have are the internal customers, yeah. the, the, the application team, right? So they go to the application team and tell them, look, uh, we are consolidating our infrastructure. From now on, you have to uh, you have to do CI in this way. When you roll out a, a new release to a customer, you have to do it through this uh, automated process. And the application team is just thinking, what are you doing to my reality? They are running around, putting out fires at the customers, trying to get on top of the latest release and the the infrastructure team will think why are they so slow at adapting and the application team will think why are they actively trying to ruin my my, my work and I, I think that's a, a, a sort of a, a pattern I've seen again and again because people don't understand each other's reality so I think what what I've also had some success with is actually to for example tell someone on the infrastructure team, look, now you go and work on the application for a month. And then they understand, right, they're constantly customers calling and we have to roll out these things. And, and they, they, they get a much better grip of the reality yeah. that they have to push. And then they actually start 
uh, delivering the new features in a way that makes sense for the people that needs to use them. And conversely, right, the application team sees that the infrastructure team is actually trying to make their job easier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe another example of silo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. I think that's a, cl a classical example, right? But I mean, it's a, it's a super big and interesting area. Uh, you can do a lot of stuff stuff in, into that. But something that I have been been reflect as well, well to, to create this communication data is because if you have a common purpose or common goal, uh, that also, you know, kind of opens up. I can take an analogy. I think everyone here has been uh, experienced an incident, a tech incident when, when all the production systems are down. That is one of the, the cases where everyone just goes it, uh, to, together and helps out. Kind of majority of the politic bureaucracy and everything kind of disappears and everyone gets super focused. I mean, it's like the analogy, if the house is on, on, uh, house is on fire uh, and you have 20 people around you uh, and there is a bucket of water next to you, no one will ask for permission if they can take that bottle of water and throw it. They would just do it because they see the, there is a fire, they need to put it, put it down. Uh, and you don't have to maybe to go to that extreme level when creating the, the, the purpose and the goal. But it shows how much easier it gets for everyone when we understand what is the goal here? What is the target? I mean, in the case of the houses on fire, everyone knows that the fires need to go out. We need to cool it down. If I have found water, I will throw it at, at it. So that kind of, you know, uh, improves the, the ability for people to take initiatives. They have the courage to take initiative. And they trust themselves that they can take the initiative, you know, and and uh, and then drive 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 through. That opens up kind of the the dialogue between the teams, but then they start to trust each other because they did the work together. All yeah. all of this was a, a part part of it. So yeah, I think yeah. that's a, that's a really good thing, you know, getting the opportunity to work together. As you were talking about the automated, like continuous delivery part of things, right? That's typically one of the areas I've seen a lot of success where developments teams and, and the uh, former operations and DevOps teams have worked together to create the automations around the, specifically around the continuous delivery part of things. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, yeah, that's been proven very successful as well and it's it's great to hear that there's there's something that you get confirmed right and there's a few new ideas right and uh that's that's been really great yeah uh i would say i mean we do, we do a lot of things um we hold a lot of horizontal events across the whole organization so as the enterprise tech stream we are sponsors of a number of what we call community of practices. Yeah, so we will hold um, a monthly um, uh, Skype or, or Teams meetings um, around uh, test management or automation or the best use of Jenkins. Yes, and we get hundreds of people turning up to these events. Yes, so being very open, transparent, sharing knowledge. That, that's, that's a great thing. Yes, having, a, having an attitude of always having an open door. Doesn't matter what the query is, come to us. So we have, um, official and un unofficial ways of contacting us, yes. Um, and if you use the official ways of contacting us, you don't get lost in any sort of mail queue. It goes into very transparent Jira boards. It pops up in our stand-up. Oh, we've had a query from a team. Who wants to take it? Um, and then whoever does take the queries from the teams, show enthusiasm, uh, keep in touch, follow up. 
you know, uh, if you go quiet, you know, go back to them. Hey, haven't heard you guys in the last uh, couple of weeks or whatever. What's happening with your uh, with all your uh, all your efforts? Oh, we're bogged down in production issues. Fine, okay. Let us know when you need help. You know, um, so keep the momentum going. I think that's uh, that, that's key for a lot of these things. Um, celebrating success. That's a really good one. If, if things go well, you know, talk about it. You know, get it out there, and not just for yourself. If you see other teams doing good jobs, sing their praises. Say, "Hey, guys, just imagine if you were like that team over there. I mean, they've done some fantastic job." And then you find teams talking to each other, and they find out, "Yeah, you know, my stress levels are up here. I was always late picking the kids up because I was doing this. Now I've got all this automation in place. Yeah, it's a breeze. I, I, I can do my code, and I've got to worry about all this." And and then it becomes a layered thing as well because you know you you solve all their immediate problems yeah but they have other problems they weren't talking about yes so you start to move on to even more complex problems that even weren't on the drawing board when you first talked to them because it wasn't even possible to even consider that because they were so much doing things the old way yeah so um uh, and if you get teams who are working in similar areas, get them in contact with each other. You know, it hasn't got to be you doing everything. And sometimes we have teams who we've helped then become ambassadors for automation in other areas mm. you know, um, that uh, we didn't even get to contact. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really core here that you're growing a culture, especially, you know, leadership wise, you're growing a culture. So, so create those arenas where this can happen. Right. And, and do after works. Do breakfasts, and, and especially I would say in Sweden, it's difficult because we're, you know, we're now focusing a lot on 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 competence versus tools, right? And there's a bit of a change, uh, but also we're not used to focus of spending money onto building culture this way. So a lot of companies, unfortunately, have a bit of a challenge into okay, so we're going to spend more money on like after works and breakfasts and things that is difficult to see. The return on investment on on, on that mm -hmm. sense that they're used to, right? Yeah. So that is a leadership challenge, I would say. But it's yeah. worth any penny. I, Every uh, penny. Super, uh, yeah, no, totally, totally agree. It's super important those those things around it as as well. Uh, and I mean, <clears throat> so, uh, sorry. No, no, it's it's uh, fun. I mean, of course, you also need kind of have uh, to build the, the trust uh, between teams. You need to have good leaders. You need to have leaders that like people and understands people. I would I would say, and that is not the case everywhere. You you go tend to focus on on one one part, but you need leaders that are interesting in into the people aspect of it. You know, and trying at least to uh, to understand and go from where they are. You know, and try to work on your leadership from where your team are, not from maybe where you are always. You need to kind of see it from the team's perspective, you know, and take the steps from, from their world. And I think you can also uh, agree uh, that the social aspect is super important. I think you can also set up some organizational structures that help the knowledge and the understanding of uh, different teams uh, work. So, yeah. for example, Hava, you mentioned that the leaders has to work well together. That's one super important aspect. Uh, what what uh, what we've done and what I think works really well is that we have, for example, a, a technical lead on each team. And those the technical leads are a group as well. So sort of a, a basic matrix organization, right? And the next step I, I want to implement now to close down the DevOps department uh, and instead embed uh, a DevOps team across the, the the development teams, right? So you have all these. You, you don't have just the 
the horizontal lines, but you have the vertical lines as well. So you have sort of a matrix organization, right? I think that's a classical move. Obviously, yeah. it depends a lot on the size of the organization. Or you may maybe have to implement uh, various metrics, but but having that shared um, professional space as well, I think creates a lot of understanding uh, and, and it helps people get better at what they do. I mean, I learn a lot from my colleagues at least. <laughs> yeah, super good. Uh, we don't just do uh, social events. We also do some, I mean, uh, our, our team do, um, I think once every two weeks, we just do a fun event. No, it's on, we're okay. We, we got COVID and we can't do much, so it's on Teams, but we'll do a GeoFinder together for an hour. We'll have a great laugh, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that those sort of things help build it. I, I got to be, I got to admit, the the team uh, cohesion and our morale is so much higher now than it was, say, eighteen months ago, because we're trying much harder because of the pandemic. But it's it, but it, it forced us to focus on these sort of things. Whereas before, we took it for granted. Now we realise we're all at home. We all do. We actually do miss each other. That's another thing I, I never thought I'd say is I miss my colleagues. Yeah. Um, you know, so we make a lot bigger effort to, to to build that relationship between us. And I think that's also impacting the teams we talk to. I make a much bigger effort now to be, you know, more more for them because they're in the same boat. You know, they're all sitting at home and they're all they're all feeling like they need help. Yeah. Fantastic. Are there any final points? Well, great talking to you guys. It's been yeah. <laughs> interesting yeah. feedback. Great session. Very interesting. Yeah, Take really it. interesting. Uh, fantastic. So